Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome folks to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, going solo today again. More on that a little bit later. We'll update. 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call and speak to me. If you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our show website, and that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. You can also listen to the show via the call in line if that's your only means to do so. So here we are. Let's do a real brief recap. Last week we did a show on death. Sounds dark. Uh, I hope it wasn't. Uh, there are no experts, but we tried to do tried to be a little enlightening uh, on on the process and and how we and those who are uh, in recovery and or not and are struggling to uh, deal with loss, some means and mechanisms and some different ways of uh, looking at it. I will say one thing um, I didn't mention last week, which I will mention now, is that uh, just from my experience, and I don't have much in terms of years. There's people that have been around a lot longer than me, but just from my little bit of experience, uh, one of the important things that we can do when we lose someone close to us is to uh, continue to talk to them as if they were here. Uh, you'd be surprised that... Uh, what that does for you. Um, so I think that's all we got on the recap for that subject. Uh, as, as I said before, and when we were doing the show, that's a it's, a it's a heavy energy subject when you're talking about that touches everybody. So I think that's the only thing that I missed. I think I wanted to uh, recap on. All right, let's go to our our usual deal. 
I am thoroughly disgusted with the Cowboys. But all is not lost. Um, this is going to be one of those years. I've, I've had some bad years where the Cowboys, the Jets, and the Giants don't make the playoffs. This year, I'm looking at a possibility of two out of the three. Neither one of them, the Giants and the Jets, which are the only two teams remaining with a chance. I don't count the Cowboys anymore. The Cowboys are now playing for a high draft pick, so lose they must in order to get that high draft pick. We we need a cataclyptic pass rusher or cornerback, game-changing. That's what that means, a game-changing pass rusher or cornerback. Uh, so it's all about losing. Not purposely, but hopefully the teams they're playing are better than them in this current state that they're in. But now it's about the Jets winning and the Giants winning. So it was a big win last night for the Giants. And once again, since uh, my co-host is not here, when he returns, he must give us the update on his local team because, as I said before, I will not waste any of my oxygen talking about the San Francisco 49ers. Speaking of our humble co-host, last word seems to be uh, holding up okay, doing well. Still in mourning. Uh, safe to say, expect them back the next show. So um, that's where things are with him. And uh, we continue to move uh, forward. Topic We had talked about doing a redo of forgiveness um, for a number of reasons. Number one, because we had some technical difficulties the last time. When we did that topic, I believe it was back in early July. And so the show was cut off a couple of times uh, due to network um, server issues on their end, not on our end. And we thought because of the importance of the subject that it would be it would be worthy to do another show. Um, it's not going to be word for word, obviously, but another show on that topic um, so that we have a complete show rather than uh, we had to put the two clip everything together because of the interruptions. Uh, it's a it's a significant topic, so I'm, I'm going to get right into it. Uh, there's three aspects to forgiveness. I know when you mention forgiveness, I think in any realm, whether you're in a treatment program or just sitting around a bunch of people, body language speaks loudly before anyone says a word. If someone's wearing a you know button-down sweater that's open, they kind of pull it a little tighter around them. Arms start to fold. People shift in their chairs. It, it, it seems to be no, no other subject, topic, at the very least, in the treatment community that uh, causes a lot of consternation. Good, bad, and or ugly, um, but it's certainly not a topic that should not go uh, discussed and should not be uh, drilled down upon. As a matter of fact, if it was up for me, I would change the word from forgiveness to trigiveness, since it involves really three aspects in order to 
Forgiveness itself involves three aspects. One, forgiveness of oneself. Two, or you can call this 1A if you or 1B if you want, um, asking to be forgiven. And then three, the big one, forgiving others. So we'll start with number one, forgiving oneself. Anyone that has spent any amount of time in the life, and again, when we say the life, you know what we mean, the life of an addict, for any extended period of time, you do things, say things in order to get drugs. You you impact people negatively from one extreme to the other. Mostly or usually your family, the worst. Why, why the family? Well, the family is the one that's going to tolerate it the most. That's usually the case most of the time. So if someone's going to, someone that's you know in an, you know living an addictive an addiction life, and they're going to steal, you know they're going to steal from their family first rather than venture out where there's more risk at harm, physical harm, or risk of a of a significantly negative consequence. So family is usually the one that feels the impact of the addict's life first and the most in more ways than one. They feel it emotionally, and then, of course, they feel it in other ways if the, the addict is impacting them in those ways. And so when the addict decides that they're going to change their life, they make that decision that it's, you know they're done, they're tired, or they've hit rock bottom. At a certain point, process, the addict has to forgive themselves for the things that they have done. And this seems to be, even though number three, I said is the biggie, this seems to be also a difficult step for some. Whether or not it's dependent on the things they may have done to family members or others plays a role in the degree of difficulty, or whether or not the addict has not sufficiently resolved issues around things that they have done to you know to family members or others where they themselves don't feel worthy of forgiving themselves. They still look in the mirror and see a, a bad person, so to speak. And so forgiving themselves in earnest, not just in words, saying the words, but really in earnest where you really feel that you have done this uh, because when when you do that, you change in terms of of how you view yourself, and as a result of that, there's a collateral, almost domino effect to the process of forgiveness. As you go down, you know, into forgiveness number two and forgiveness number three. For example. If I forgive myself for something I've done to a particular person in earnest, um, 
in all sincerity. And the next step was to seek forgiveness from that from that person, and that person refused to forgive me. If I have forgiven myself, the fact that that person has refused to forgive me should not send me back down the the opposite road of well, since they haven't forgiven me, I guess I have to I can't forgive myself for what I've done to that person. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it should be. Because ultimately, and this goes for everybody involved in the process, so the the addict themselves, the people that they've harmed, and so on and so forth, each person, it comes back to each individual. So as the addict, all I can do, all I have control over is my sincerity, my earnestness in terms of seeking the forgiveness, and then the person, I have no control over what the other person is going to, how they're going to respond, what they're going to say, etc. I have no control over that. But if I forgive him myself, although it is a, let's say, a worthy thing to put on the shelf if someone says, you know what, I, I, I forgive you for what you've done. Doesn't mean they forget. Sometimes people confuse the two, forgive, forget. You don't forget things. You have a memory. So the person says, I forgive you. That's something worthy of putting on your mantle. Not something for you to live on, but it's something that you can put on your shelf and say, okay, that that feels good. But it's not a deal breaker for the process if they don't. So it's important that we somehow get the addict to the place of where that they can forgive themselves for what they have done. Well, how do we get them there? How do we move them from the point when, of how they feel about themselves when they walk in the door, which is, let's say, 10 is the worst, 1 is the best. So they feel a 10. That's how bad they feel about themselves and the things they've done and how they've treated people. How do we move them from that and ultimately get them to a 1? In that process. Well, one of the things that we try and find out and we drill down on these details is very important. Um, And and, and this is part of the treatment process, the the day-to-day process of going through treatment. And it's not necessarily, quote-unquote, me, the counselor who does this, although in caseload group or static group, I may touch on these things, but it's really left to my peers. The peer group has the responsibility really of doing what we call the drill down, which is getting into the analysis of one's behavior when they were out there in the life and what those and what those behaviors said about me, what they meant. Why that's important. So we what we just talked about is like who should do it. So we know the addict is involved and in and, and, and the best case scenario the peers. And, but if that scenario doesn't present itself, then someone has to help the addict through that process. And we have to find out, well, what did, what did we do that has made us feel so bad about ourselves? And then we have to help them get from that number 10 of the worst feeling to the number one, a point of I now feel good about myself. 
Well, we got to talk about what was done. We have to analyze that. And we have to find out those things that were done or those things that were said, because not always things that were like done to people. It could be things that you said. You know, you, you said something real bad to someone because they refused to give you money to buy drugs, and so you just said terrible things to them. Well, words hurt, just like actions hurt. Words hurt. So we have to find out, are you... If, if there was uh, a period of time that we can look at where the addict was clean and sober, you know, uh, when did they start using? The earlier, the younger that they started using, then the harder it becomes to use this avenue. Because if someone started using drugs at nine years old, can't use that. Because at nine years old, they haven't even reached the age of intellectual maturity yet. So for for the sake of this discussion, let's say someone started using in their teenage years, high school age, you know, 14, 15, 16. So they have some level of intellectually maturity. Fully matured, no, but some level, okay? They're a normal person. And we have to find out, well, prior to you, you know, really becoming an everyday user, what, what kind of person were you? Did you talk to people this way all the time? Is this, is, how, is this how you responded to your mother when you weren't on drugs? Is this how you uh, treated people when you weren't on drugs? Is, are these types of behaviors that you engaged in when you weren't on drugs? Did you rob, steal, uh, assault people and things of that nature when you weren't on drugs? And, of course, what we're looking for is, is the answer, no. I didn't do those things. I didn't talk to my family members in 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 the, those ways when I was straight, clean, sober. I didn't rob and steal and do other things uh, that I ended up doing to get drugs when I was straight, clean, and sober. And so if we hear that, we have a starting point. So... What you're saying then, as we're talking to the addict, is when you were not using, including prior to even getting involved in the life, but even when you were in the life, periods of time or even days when you were you just you just weren't you know in seeking out drugs, you know, when an addict gets into the seek mode, they get tunnel vision. Okay, so not in the seek mode, because when you're in the seek mode, an addict's in the seek mode, the world does not exist except for looking for that drug. Anything else, all the peripheral stuff, they don't see. Don't notice, don't care. I'm honed in on picking up. But if we can find and get them to see with you know within that world that when that was not the case when they weren't in that tunnel, that's not how they behaved. That's not how they carried themselves. That's not how they were prior to. That's not how they were during the periods of time while they were in the life when they had moments of sobriety. And when I say moments, I don't mean that someone was clean for a few months or clean for a few years in between using. I, I even mean if if it was just during the overnight. You know, there are people who get high you know, they sleep it off, 
And if they're functional addicts, they might go to work and then, you know, next evening comes around and they get high again. But during that time when they're not using, they're a different person. And if that's the case, we have something we can latch on to. What kind of person were you? Well, I was a, I was a nice person, regular person. I, I was respectful. Treated people, other people respectfully. Lived by the golden rule, so to speak. And if that's the case, we can then use those details to show them how you weren't this person that you became as an addict and those things that you did and said and et cetera and those behaviors that you displayed, that's not who you were when that was not your reality, the life of an addict. So if that's the case, then that means I can ask you this question. Would you have spoken to your family member that way if you weren't under the influence or if you weren't in seek mode? And if I can get a no to that, then I can latch on to that. See? You wouldn't have done that if you weren't in seek mode or if you weren't using at the time. What would you what would you have done? How would you have behaved? And then you they'll tell me how they would have behaved under normal circumstances or how they normally would have normally acted before they even started using drugs. And the more we can point those things out, the more we can help them make the connection between them, the addict, and, and all that goes with it, and them, the non-addict, prior to or periods of not using, etc., and show the distinction between their words and deeds during that time. And then ultimately, what we want them to be able to recognize is that, hey, wow, you know, when I, when I wasn't using or before I started using, that's not the person that I was. I, I didn't do those sort of things. I didn't talk that way to my family members. I didn't act, you know, the way that I acted. And if we can get them to acknowledge that, see it, realize it, we can then say it is perfectly acceptable and perfectly makes sense for you to be able to forgive yourself for the things that you have done that when you look back on, you feel bad about. You feel bad about talking to your parents in a bad way. You can forgive yourself for that if you know if it wasn't under those circumstances of being in the life, you would never have done such a thing. You feel bad about robbing, stealing, and and other things that people do when they're in the life. And you know that if you weren't in the life, you wouldn't have done those things. You can forgive yourself for those things. Now, you would have a much harder time arriving at that spot of being able to say, you know what, I can forgive myself for those things because of A, B, and C. If you did those things, whether you were using drugs or not, whether you, uh, before you were an addict and, you know, and, and after you became an addict, you were a horrible person, period. And if that's the case, you got a long road to hope. That's the honest truth. 
and the and, and the counselor has to work real hard, especially especially, and this is key here. If if that's the circumstance where you cannot even find a distinction between how the person behaved and acted when they were not on drugs versus when they were on drugs, in the negative, I'm saying, and the person sitting in front of you says, I feel bad for how I was under both circumstances, and they want to be able to forgive themselves for how they were. So if you find yourself in that situation, you, you're not able, you can't use that example. But the majority of time, way more often than not, that will never be the case. That will be a rarity. More often than not, the person you can you can find you can see the distinction and 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 be able to use that to show the person that hey here's why you are worth forgiving yourself here's how i can show you that you know what take the drugs and alcohol out of the picture and see these examples of this type of person that you were versus these examples of the type of person you were when you were in the life. And if you're able to show them that, then we have high probability of being able to obtain from them and then obtain, obtain for themselves to be able to say, hey, you know what? I, I can't forgive myself. And not only can I forgive myself, I do forgive myself. And them to be sincere about it, to mean it, and most of all, to feel it. Because it can't just be the words. They have to feel it inside. And they can say to others externally, outwardly, that they do. But if they don't really feel it and believe it, it means nothing. And and we have no way of knowing that until we see behavior that shows us otherwise. And so... We have to make it crystal clear to them that, look, this is something you not not only must you say, and not only you must you believe, but you got to feel it. You got to feel that you are worthy to yourself of forgiving yourself. Because if we can't accomplish that, if if we can't get the addict to accomplish that, if the addict doesn't accomplish that. Number two, or one A or B, whatever you want to call it, and number three, doesn't matter, irrelevant. They won't get there. I cannot worry about forgiving others or worry about being forgiven by others if I don't even forgive myself for something I may have said, something I may have done. It doesn't work in reverse. I, we don't, I don't back into, like I don't seek forgiveness from others um, and try and back into or forgive other people and try and back into eventually forgiving myself. That does not work. 100% failure rate. Fortunately, or in, and in the eyes of some, and usually it's the addict, 
unfortunately, whether you want to believe it or not, whether you want to see it or not, you are the most important person in the equation. No matter how bad the dirt is that you may have done. Remember we said the good, the bad, and even the ugly. No matter how bad the dirt is, you're the most important person in the forgiveness equation. Without you, it becomes irrelevant. So we got to conquer number one, forgiving oneself. And whatever assistance that we can use to get us there, the more the merrier. What do I mean by that? Well, clients oftentimes come into treatment, and I'll use two terms, either find religion slash spirituality or reconnect to religion or spirituality. And that then helps play a, helps play a role in that process. That's what I mean by the more the merrier. It matters not how they get there. So they're going to have assistance from their peers. They might get some assistance from their counselor. They'll get spiritual slash religious assistance because they talk a lot in religion about forgiveness. Not a lot about the process of how you go and go about it, but they talk a lot about it and how important it is. And so whatever help you can get from that venue makes it easier to accomplish the ultimate goal, which is for, for to hear these magic words. You know, I, I forgive myself for the things I've said, for the things I've done, for the people I've harmed. I forgive myself and they mean it, they believe it, and they feel it. We believe that to be the case, and we move to the next step. The addict has forgiven themselves for their past de- words and deeds. Now, the reason why I said step number two, asking to be forgiven by others, can easily be tied to, you know, step number one. So it can almost be a 1A and a 1B is because it's incumbent. And, you know, and I think in the the 12-step realm, they speak to this a lot. It's incumbent on you, regardless of what the circumstance may be, for you to seek forgiveness, if at all possible, from persons you have done wrong to, you have done harm to. Not every single person that you have done wrong to or harm to, that's going to be a reality. So the reality is I'm talking about your family, okay, because those are the ones that are going to be be there before, during, and after. Before the life, during the life, and in the aftermath of the life. So those should be the 
first people on the list, and then any other people that are in your circle of influence that has also experienced the negative impact in whatever fashion um, of your addictive addiction. Not addictive addiction, by the way. I was just correcting myself. So you must seek those people out. And whether it's a general, you know, like you get, if you're in the army, they give you like a general discharge versus an honorable discharge or what have you. If it's, if it's someone who, I, you know, I don't remember, I was in such a fog during, you know, during my addiction. I don't remember the things I said and the things I did. I just know it was bad. I just know it was bad. And so I, and I call that seeking a, a general forgiveness for whatever it is I may have said, whatever it is I may have done during that time when I was in the life. And then, of course, there's the specific thing. So, you know, I, I would remember if I, you know, said something that was totally out of bounds to my parents, totally out of bounds. And you remember that specifically. And so you would want to specifically apologize and ask for forgiveness on that particular thing. I guess that would be the equivalent to an honorable because it's specific. And the exercise of doing this, again, it is not for the other person. It is for you. The addict, you must do this regardless of the answers you may receive. And they may range from, because remember, people are judging you based on what you do, not on what you say. So if there's a body of work for them to look at and see of you getting your life together and being serious about it, well, how how can they tell you're serious? Well, He's been in treatment for four months, and and he's still there, and and that shows to me, at least as of now, that he's committed. He hasn't been in and out of treatment programs, you know, the last four months. No, he's been in a treatment program and has stayed there and has shown, at least from afar, I haven't spoken to him, but from afar has shown the commitment to changing his life. I might be using one single gender pronouns, but you know what I mean, male or female or whatever. And so if I see that, it doesn't have to be five years down the line where I've seen, oh, you you know, it's been five years. You know, now I can, you know, use my little anointing wand and anoint you with forgiveness. No, it's, you know... Who knows when, you know, the time is going to be that you're going to interact with people and contact people and people, family members are coming to visit you while you're in treatment, et cetera, et cetera. It's the process. You know when the time is right. I'm not going to tell you the time when the time is. You'll know when the time is right. You'll feel when the time is right. It's this amazing thing about feeling and vibes that you pick up. 
that can really guide you. So you'll feel when the time is right. And I make no distinction to a client if they've only been in treatment. I say only with my hands up in quotes. In treatment four months or they've been there 12 months. If you feel inside that the time is right for you to ask, speak to your brother, speak to your sister, your mother, your aunt, your father, whomever, that now is the time for you to, you know, apologize for the behavior you exhibited during that when you were out there doing what you were doing, and ask and seek their forgiveness, then that's when the time is right for you. The only thing you have to do. I say the only. There are two things you, the addict, just using it as an adjective, not a you know pejorative. There's only two things you must do. One, have zero expectation of what the answer may be. Regardless of what you may desire, have no expectation. Because it, it, it's just the exercise of what you're doing. That's important. Let me repeat that. Have zero expectation of what the answer may be. It's the exercise that's important. And number two, make sure that they feel your sincerity and that it doesn't appear like you're just you know, checking off on a checklist of things you have to do. And I think this is the uh, kind of like the trap that some people get into when they're doing um, the 12 steps is it, it becomes a checklist to them rather than something they're supposed to experience and feel. So the last thing you want is the person who you're asking for their forgiveness or seeking forgiveness from that they that it appears to them that they're they're it's, they're just like a number on a checklist or it's just something you're checking off of your list of things you have to accomplish while you're getting your 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 act together. No, they need to feel your sincerity, feel that you know you are sorry for what you what you did and how you behaved and how you acted and the things you've said. And even if you do those two things, those two things are present, you have no control over how they may respond. Again, that's in their court. And if I was speaking to them, it's funny how this goes in the circle. If I was speaking to them, I would be saying to them, it's important for you what, how you have to respond. But I'm not speaking to them. I'm speaking to you, the addict. And once you have done that, to the extent that you could, to the people that are important, to the people that are in your sphere of influence, where it's necessary for you to go through this exercise, once you've completed that, you know, the hope is that uh, you got some positive responses, positive feedback. The reality is it's going to be a mixture of both depending on what it is that you did. If you stole $10,000 from somebody and you have no means of paying it back, they may not be as uh, open to your request for 
forgiveness and your apology. But it's still important that you go through the exercise. That person must then deal with their own process for themselves. And we're going to get to, in talking about you, the addict, why that's very important, the process for you. So we've finished number one, I've forgiven myself for the things I've done. Number two, or one A, I've asked, sought out, apologized to, and sought forgiveness from people that I've harmed, people I've done wrong while I was in the life. Focused on the process, the exercise, not the responses. If you got positive responses, they're worthy of putting on the shelf, metaphorically speaking. Negative responses, you have to just deal with them, absorb them for what they are, but they're not for you to hold on to. Because then it becomes about the other person, and it's not about them, it's about you, and it's about the process. So let's go to the final step. We don't need a break. This is important stuff. Forgiving others. We can do, we could have successfully completed number one, successfully completed number two, and set up, which is what we get a lot. I'm not, I'm not uh, forgiving you for that. I'm not forgiving you for this, that, or another. Well, you, the addict, you have to complete the circle for yourself. So if you have been done wrong, if you have been harmed by words and deeds, you have to somehow get to the place of forgiving those who have done harm against you. Why is it so hard? Why is that one? Not the forgiveness, not the try for, not the try forgiveness as I've worded it, not the whole aspect of the process. But that one, forgiving others, why is that one so elusive for people? We can work with people and get them to forgive themselves. We can work with them and get them to seek forgiveness from people whom they've harmed. But when it comes to forgiving others who've harmed you, that's a different story. It's a different game. When that one, if we were cutting it up into a pie, three parts to the pie, but they're not equal, I would say that one is, um, let's say, 60% of the pie. And I'm, I'm giving it 60% just in terms of historical difficulty. Doesn't mean it should be 60%, but just in terms of 
what it has appeared to be in terms of difficulty for people, I think it's worthy of 60%. I'm, I might be underestimating or giving it less than what it should be, but let, let's stick with 60%. Forgiving others. What, what's, what's, what blocks us? What's, what stops us from saying, I, I forgive you? for saying to me what you said. I forgive you for doing what you did. I forgive you for stealing from me. I forgive you for um, this, that, or another, whatever it may be. I'll add a caveat to that. Different people for different reasons are going to have a different timeline on this particular, this third part of the forgiveness triangle for very good and valid reasons. If someone's been abused physically, sexually, or what have you, those are tra- that's a traumatic experience. And people need assistance, therapy, counseling, to walk them through that process and then get them to ultimately get them to that point. But that might that might be a long walk and that's okay. Everyone is not on the same timeline. But what we must get people to understand because someone can be in treatment for twelve months, for example, and the door has been opened on the trauma that a person may have experienced. And the, the, the trauma is not the, – the, the feelings regarding the trauma is not going to be resolved in that 12-month period. So we know that we're going to refer this person for further counseling and therapy to continue the process of getting them through, past, and to a point with that traumatic experience that it no longer is going to impact their daily life. Let me repeat that, that it's no longer going to impact their daily life. Not that they're going to forget it. We're not going to hypnotize anyone into forgetting something. But that they're going to learn how to live with the experience and learn how to no longer allow it to dictate what they do or impact their life in a negative way. That is not going to happen more often than not when, when it involves a tr- seriously traumatic experience in 12 months. And so in a person within that example, it would be unrealistic to expect them to complete the forgiveness triangle in that time. Because I would say, very, the, the, if not the last step, but very near to one of the last steps of that process of dealing with that traumatic experience is forgiving, the forgiving process. However, what does need to happen, as I've said many times before, the person leaves our sphere of influence 
is that they understand intellectually. They may not be there emotionally yet, but they understand intellectually what must happen. And if I can get a person to say, I clearly understand what I need to do. I may not be ready to do it yet, but I clearly understand it. I'm okay with that. I can live with that. Because we certainly can't put someone in a headlock and make them go through a process and make them resolve it and make them accept it and make them forgive. We can't do that. And when I say put them in a headlock, I don't mean that uh, literally, of course. I mean that figuratively and trying to put people in a headlock metaphorically in, 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 in the way that you try and get them to a certain point in the process. You can't force it. You can open the doors, explain what the door, you know, what's behind these doors, let them know what's going to happen when they walk through those doors, and then they have to then be able to take that step. But the one thing I got to get from you is you understand the process. And if I can get that, I'm okay. Because then the ball, where the ball is, where it should be, it remains in your court. Let's put that to the side. I would not call that an extreme example because we encounter that often. So let's call that the minority example, but it's a significant minority. Let's use the majority example. Not that much difference between the two might be 55-45. So in the majority example, there's not any extreme trauma involved. And the likelihood is high based on what we know, what the person has exposed, what they've talked about, that they should be able to complete forgiveness triangle. Well, when we bring it up in the group setting, the seminar setting, etc., when I opened the topic, I said, you know, people start shifting in their seat. They fold their arms. They close their sweaters, pull their sweaters tighter and pull their, their you know, the, the, the drawstrings on the hoodies a little bit tighter on the neck. It's uncomfortable. You know, when, when we ask you to when, – when, when, when – the universe says in order to achieve and obtain what it is that you want, you have to forgive in order to get it. What the universe is saying is nothing, nothing comes for free. That includes when it has to do with your feelings, your emotions. Nothing comes for free. There is no free lunch. Well, what do you mean by that? We're just talking about forgiveness, but I don't understand the connection between the two. No free lunch, forgiveness, no free lunch. What do you mean by that? Well, here's the connection. If I'm going to forgive you for something that you said to me that was horrible or something that you did to me, 
some wrong that you did, some dirt that you did. And if I'm going to forgive you for it, what is it requiring of me to do? Because right now, that memory of what you did, what you said, whatever it may be, I got it, for lack of a better description, I got it holstered in my hip. And as long as I got it, I can whip it out whenever I want and use it, throw it, slingshot it, use any term that you want. However, if I give it up, if I lay down my weapon, if I throw up my hands, if I, dare I say, expose myself and, 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 and experience some vulnerability because I'm giving it up, I'm handing it over to you, giving it back to you, metaphor for forgiveness. I don't have it to use anymore. I can't throw it up in your face anymore. See, that's what happens when you truly forgive somebody. You got to give it up. Well, give what do you, what do you when you say give it up? What are you actually saying, though? That, that's where I'm. That's where I'm losing you, counselor. Well, what I mean by when I say you got to give it up is when you got something on somebody because of what they've done, what they've said, how they've harmed you. Okay, and you keep it. More often than not, it's especially. And I'm talking about people who are in your sphere of influence, your family, people that mean something to you. I'm not talking about the person who cut in line, cut in line, cut in front of the line you at the supermarket. I'm talking about that person. You know who I'm talking about? Girlfriends, spouses, children, friends, people that mean something to you. So you hold on to it, you weaponize it, and use it whenever you deem appropriate. But if you have to give it up, if you give it up, it's no longer available for you to use. You've done something very difficult. You've given up the big C. What's the big C? Control. See, while I still got it, whether it's true or not in my, you know, in reality, in my mind, I'm in, I'm still retaining control. By not forgiving you, I retain control over whatever it is has transpired between you and I. And I get to use it, i.e. weaponize it, use it whenever I want to. Against you. So no, I'm not forgiving you. Which begs the question. When someone decides whether outwardly or just to themselves, no, I'm not forgiving you. I'm not forgiving that person. What they said, what they did, how they harmed me, whatever it is. What are you actually saying? Right? You're saying you're not going to give up the control. You're going to keep it weaponized.
do you realize that the only person that's hurting is you? The person that's keeping it? Do you realize that what you, the, the harmony, the peace, the, the good feelings that you want are being blocked by this thing that you won't let go of? Easy to say, I want to feel good about myself. I want to build and maintain my self-esteem, my self-confidence. I want to set and accomplish my goals. It's easy to say those things. I want to be a role model with how I treat people. Easy to say that. But yet you can't forgive your brother for what he did. You can't forgive this person for what they said. Yes, it was hurtful. What was said, what was done. But you can't have it both ways. And that's the catch. In order to get what you want, what you truly want, you want to be able to move forward. You want to be able to make progress. You want to feel good about yourself in all aspects. You want to complete that circle. You don't want this piece of the pie sitting there in that corner digging at you. And the only reason it's sitting there is because you're holding on to it. And some people believe that if they let it go, if they forgive that person for what they've done, that they're somehow empowering the other person. It's the exact opposite. You're empowering yourself. You're empowering yourself. Thing, the thing that has controlled you by you holding on to it, that has impacted your life, that dictates what you do, that thing, whatever it may be, You let it go, you get what you want. There's no free lunch. And that's the only way that it's going to happen. But it's hard for people to give up that control. If I give if I give that if if I give that up, what do I have? Well you're not supposed to quote unquote have anything that you use over people's heads. That's not right. You're not supposed to have anything. The only person it impacts is you. So when we're dealing with the addict in this process, in this triangle of forgiveness, we try and get across. When we get to this third one, this hard one about forgiving others, is that at the root of it, and I mean at the very root of it, when you sit down and analyze it, is control. As long as I can remain in control over this thing, then it won't hurt me. Or they won't be able to hurt me anymore. Or it won't happen again. Or 
or I'm so pissed off at what has happened that I'm going to use that as a weapon. So every time a disagreement comes up, an argument comes up, you weaponize that and use it. See, when you give it up and you actually forgive for the thing that was said or done, truly, it's no longer available to you to, for utilization that way. And that's a big step, and it's a necessary step. And unless you take that step, you're not going to achieve what it is that you're actually looking for. There's no free lunch. You don't get to complete the circle by leaving out that little slice. You got to complete the circle. And as I said, that last slice, that huge slice, that 60% slice of that pizza pie, It'll take some time, different, you know, different amount of time for different different people for different reasons, and that's okay. But we certainly cannot kid each other. We have to be straight up in understanding what's actually taking place. You, uh, you, I want to hear. I'm aware of the fact that by holding on to this, that this is what's taking place. I'm aware that if I want to get to this place, this is what I need to do with this issue. I'm aware of that. And once I get that, I'm good. Because then a person cannot say, well, I I don't know how to do that process. I want to forgive. I just don't know how. I don't want anyone to be able to say that. I want them to know the process. Understand what will happen if you do versus if you don't exercise the process and own it. Either way, own it. I mean, you own it anyway, whether you realize it or not, but you're going to intellectually own it. You own it emotionally. There's nothing you can do about that, but you're going to intellectually own it. And that is what I'm speaking to today, your intellect on this issue, not your emotions which I know is flipped from what we usually do. But when it comes to this, people have to have an intellectual understanding of this process of forgiveness, forgiving oneself, asking to be forgiven, forgiven, and then forgiving others. Understand that intellectual process. And then there's no excuse. The decision's in your hand, the ball's in your court, whether or not you want to implement the process exercise the process, and then most importantly, complete the process. And again, no time frame on the last, the last one, number three, forgiving others. That's the most difficult part of the, uh, the process. So we don't assign a time frame to complete it. But As I said, as long as we're in agreement that you know, that I know that you know that I know that you know, that if you don't complete that, that it will always be hanging out there. You're not going to get that thing that you're looking for until you complete it, until you give it up. That's forgiveness. 
the elusive unwritten philosophy where the ties get pushed up closer and the sweaters get pulled tighter and the arms get folded and wrapped around the stomach more because, oh, I don't know about that one. We get, we get, we got to cut through and get past all of that to achieve this one. All right, we're at the top of the hour. We're going to take our usual top of the hour music break, and then we're going to come back on the other side with our uh, recovery support time. So let's take a break, and uh, we'll come back later. Cannot fill these empty 
Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Welcome back to Roach on Recovery. We just finished our topic on forgiveness, which I think I'll start calling trigiveness from now on since it has three parts to it. Uh, Recovery support time. No call screener, so the regular no call call screener rules apply. We're going to get your first name only and then your hometown, and we'll also hopefully uh, get to some of our X-Files and uh, chop that list down because we got a thick files of questions. So let's go to our, a call that's been holding a long time. Hi, can I have your first name, please, in your hometown? Hello? Hello. Hi, my name is Samantha. I'm from Walnut Creek, California. Yeah, Samantha from Walnut Creek. Samantha. Walnut Creek. Okay. Yeah, Walnut Creek. Um, I'm just I'm newly sober, and I was wondering how I can handle like my rush of cravings as they arise in like a healthy way, and not use because of them. I need some tools. How do they come at the same time of the day? Um, no, they come just like, like, like I was listening to your radio show and like, and mostly when I feel feelings that I'm uncomfortable with feeling and then I get the urge to use and I don't want to use, so I'm trying to learn a healthy way to express my feelings without turning to alcohol. How, how long have you used for? Um, three years. Okay. And did you use daily? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to just walk you through this real quick. Okay. Picture yourself that instinctively over that three-year period of time, you have changed your instinctive reaction from when you feel things that you're not comfortable with or you don't like that you, you reach for the bottle. Yeah. To soothe you, so to speak. Okay? Mm-hmm. What we have to do over a period of time is change that instinct. And the only way that that changes is, for most people, they go somewhere where they have no access to whatever it is that they were using. And what happens? Well, I feel these feelings. They're uncomfortable. I don't like them. I'm overwhelmed by them. And I'm crawling the walls. I don't know what to do. The advice is very simple, but yet not taken often. And that is, when those feelings come, whatever they may be that you're uncomfortable with, you don't like, that in the past you would have medicated those feelings by drinking or what have you, okay? You even mentioned it. What you have to do now is you have to verbalize those feelings. You have to talk about what it is that you're actually going through at that moment in time, what you're feeling. Yeah, and not dwell on it and make it worse. 
Well, when you talk about what you're feeling, you kind of biologically exercise the energy out of you. So it doesn't feel as overwhelming as if you just sat there, kept it to yourself, and thought about it in your own brain. But when you're talking to another human being about what you're feeling at this moment in time, it's a very different experience. Okay. So not, does it, not only does it literally take your mind off of what you may have been thinking about doing instinctively, so I feel a certain way, I normally run to alcohol. Well, I'm not able to do that. That's my instinctive thought. I'm not able to do that. So I'm now doing this. I'm talking about what it is. You know what? I feel like drinking right now. Why? Because this is how I feel. This is what I'm feeling, you know, thinking about right now. This is what I'm going through. You're now doing something different. Instead of acting off of what you're feeling, you're talking about what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that makes sense. That's the instinct we're flipping. Yeah. Well, then it would be just going to just get it out and release it right then and there instead of dwelling on it and not talking about it because those feelings are still stewing inside me. I should just talk to another person or maybe go to a meeting or something. That energy has to leave you. You have to exercise that energy out, and we do that by talking about it. Well, I feel better after talking about it now, so thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. When we tell people in terms of uh, a simple way of dealing with their feelings, and we say, "Well, you got to talk about them." The suggestion or the advice sounds so, you know, it's like that's it, that's that's all you got for me. <laughs> talk about them, and we got to get them to, you know, to just try it, do it. Trust me on this one. Just give me one shot, and and then tell me after you've done it and you've experienced it. Tell me then how how it felt, and did the things I say would happen happen? I did the energy of what you were feeling dissipate as a result of you talking about what you were feeling at that moment in time to another person, not to yourself, because you, when you're an addict, you're your own worst enemy. So we don't want you talking to yourself when you're talking to another person and sharing what you're experiencing, what you're feeling. It dissipates that energy. What happens? While you're doing that, while you're not acting off of that feeling, you're not being impulsive. Addicts are very impulsive. We feel something, boom. We don't even, you know, we don't even think. When actually you do think, you just ignore it. And you go and you make a bad decision. You go and you pick up. You go and you get something to drink. The cold reality is after you finish using whatever it is you use or drinking whatever it is you drink, whatever it may be, when it's done and it wears off, whatever it was that you were experiencing prior to, whatever you were feeling, is going to come right back and smack you in the face. And that's the cycle of the addict. We medicate, it wears off, we don't like how we feel. We medicate, it wears off, we don't like how we feel. We medicate, you know, you see, just going through that same thing over and over and over again until there's some intervention and that breaks that cycle. And we always say there's only, you know, there's only three methods of intervention. Two of them aren't too good. One of them is very bad. What are they? Well, let's 
go in order of the worst first. Death, you die, you go to jail or prison, or you're fortunate enough and you hit bottom, you're still alive, and you get an opportunity to change your life and recover from what you were doing. Those are the three options. I'm open to more people can think of others. Okay, let's go back to the phones. Hi, welcome to the show. Can I have your first name, please, and your hometown? Yeah, my name is John. I'm from East Palo Alto. Hi, John. Welcome. How you doing? Good. How can I help you? Yeah, I was just wondering. Uh, do, do you know? Uh, do you have any suggestions on um, how do I can stop some uh, some negative thinking or, or or cravings for drugs? Well, the previous caller asked a similar question, so I'm going to give you a similar answer. Okay. Well, but before I answer, because you, you mentioned thinking and craving. Yes. It is the thinking related to the craving. I believe it is actually. Okay. So, does the craving occur at specific times? I mean, at a certain time, or just it could happen at any time? It you know it, they just come out of the blue any time. Have you noticed any common threads? When the craving uh, like, comes, uh, sometimes like if I'm, uh, you know, if I if I uh, if I'm really stressed out, I guess sometimes I I might start craving drugs or or uh, start you know that stinking thinking, I guess they call it. Okay. So when you when when you are experiencing something that you don't like, that's uncomfortable, um, you're stressed. Your instinct, at least in your mind, is to soothe that, medicate that. Mm-hmm. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're not doing that right now. You're looking for other alternatives. And I'm going to give you the same suggestion I gave the previous caller. Okay. You have to learn. You have to practice talking your way through that. Okay. When you're going through that stressful time, talking about it, what's stressing you out? How do you feel during that stress, stressful time? And naming how you feel, being learning how to name feelings. Okay. All right. I know it sounds simple, right? But it, right. I know it's hard. It sounds simple, but it's hard. Yeah. Um, but we've got to practice it. Exactly. It's just a matter of, of of getting used to doing it and pushing through and, and practicing, right? Right. And when you when you are able to practice it a few times and see the result, meaning that you see that by doing this, it changes the dynamic. That means, wow, after talking about it, I don't feel as stressed. I don't have the same energy of, uh, in terms of the craving. That has dissipated a little bit. It won't as it won't at first as much, but little by little you'll notice as you continue to talk more, it will dissipate. Yeah, it's just a feeling, huh? It's just a feeling. If you give it time, it will pass. That's right. Okay, well, thank you. You're very welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If we give ourselves the opportunity, which we didn't on the streets, we're out there in the life, we didn't know any better, of course. We didn't, we didn't know what we know now from experiencing treatment and learning about these things called feelings and how much they were the under underneath and the you know at the root of everything that we were doing. But if you give it time and you realize, I say to the clients all the time, say, listen, no one has ever passed away from feeling. You're gonna get your, you're gonna experience hurt feelings and other feelings. And you're going to survive them if you allow yourself to just experience them. You'll see. I'll prove it to you. Just allow yourself to experience it. All right, let's hit an X-Files. Now, this question, I don't know if it's for us or for Dr. Phil, to be honest. But they wrote it, so I'm going to ask it. You guys be the judge. It's from Mark and Oakley. I guess that's Oakley, California, because it is a city out here in the East Bay. When you are in a relationship in recovery and you have her best friend trying to get in between us by telling her lies, what path should I take to save my relationship? See what I mean by whether or not that was a Dr. Phil question or a question for us? Um, well, answer, even though I can't tell you the best way to go about doing this is you have to get the third party out of the relationship. Now, how you go about doing that because you're saying it's her best friend is a different story. But uh, what what you have in there is that you got this, this triangle going on and you got a third party in there that's stirring stuff up and... The two main parties, i.e. you and your girlfriend, will not be able to resolve whatever the issue is or or issues are while you have a third party in there stirring stuff up. So you have to have a sit down with your girlfriend on her own and have a discussion about the third party without anger, without malice. And then you go from there. After that, if that doesn't work, then it's got to go to Dr. Phil. Um, I can't understand the name, but it's from San Jose. Looks like Chata. My daughter, I'm not going to say the name, smokes marijuana and drinks. I want to help her, but don't know how. Not sure of the age of the daughter, but if she, let's say, she's a teenager or a little bit older. um, There's not much to do other than to be the best role model you can be. Be consistent in what your boundaries are for your household and be consistent in continuing to echo what your expectations are. Again, we can't put someone in a headlock and make them stop doing something as bad as we want to, especially if it's a loved one, especially if it's our children. We don't want to see them going down that road. We know it's at the end of that road. We know where that road leads. 
but sometimes it feels like we're, we're powerless to stop them from going down that road. So you have to continue to talk. Don't give up. The moment you give up and the moment your daughter believes and sees that you you have given up, that just fuels and gives an excuse to continue to do what I'm doing. Oh, she doesn't care about me. Because if she did, she would continue to talk. I mean, that's just the type of thinking that happens. And so it should never even enter your mind about giving up. Giving up is not an option. Every day, if it's that's what it takes, you're talking about it. You're speaking on it. You're speaking to your expectations. You're speaking about what you don't want to see, what you don't want her to, to do, what you expect from her, what you're not going to accept. Enforce your boundaries. Enforce your rules. It's hard, but that's what you got to do. Okay, let's go back to the phones. Hi, can I have your first name, please, and your hometown? Hi, I'm uh, in East Palo Alto, and my name is Rose Jada. Hi, Rose. Can, how can I help you? I just wanted to call your radio show to talk a little bit about, you know, my addiction and uh, what you would suggest for me to continuously work on. Well, where where are you at with your addiction? Are you receiving help for it? Uh, yeah, I'm receiving help for it. You're in a program? Uh, I believe in 12-step programs, and yeah. Okay. How long did you use drugs? For about 20 years. 20 years? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's I've a been, long time. I've been clean almost two years. Okay. So, if you've been clean about two years, Mm -hmm. during that two-year period, did you spend that time in in a program or or, or what? What was that two-year period spent doing? Um, That two-year period was spent in behavior modification, Delancey Street program called Choices. Okay. And um, I stayed in there the whole time. Mm-hmm. And then I went to my next journey was my next treatment facility that would help me work on myself and some of my issues. Okay. So what you want to do is you want to use your time wisely. Okay. And i.e. not waste any time, not worry about what anybody thinks or says and get to those issues, meaning start talking about them, sharing them. It is, why do I say that? Because 20 years is a long time. Yeah. It, is never, it is never too late okay. to experience the things uh, that you want to experience in your life, the uh, you know, goals that you may have had that have yeah. been kind of put to the side because of you know, being in the life. Never too late. Okay. So we want to use this time wisely to make sure whatever issues I have to deal with, I deal with them now, get them done now, so I can move forward in my life. Okay. Yeah, because, you know, I I really feel like I'm um, pretty blessed to have this opportunity to, to be where I am and to be able to take care of myself. 
and learn some tools and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I really look forward to what comes out of this next because I know recovery is a lifetime thing. Mm-hmm. And I just want to keep going and going. Well, you know who's in charge of that, right? Yes, me. You, that's right. Yes. And from from what I hear and what it sounds like, you're on the right track. You're on the right path. So just keep okay. going. All right. Okay? Yes, I will. All right. Good stuff. Okay. Thank you. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. So she's been in a long, uh, you know, a long process, uh, going from one treatment environment to another, but continuing to uh, stay focused on her recovery. Um, And it is an opportunity. There aren't that many uh, beds and slots out there for people like it was back in the 80s and 90s and even early 2000s. It's not like that now. You've got to take advantage of what you can get. All right, let me go quickly back to the X-Files real quick. Uh, Lance from Morgan Hill. It's been many years since I smoked weed, and I find myself craving it all the time. How do I deal with it? That's one of those things you got to drill down. When I say drill down, I mean analyze. Self-analysis with help from other people. On what's at the root of the craving. And this requires gut-level honesty. Because a craving doesn't just miraculously come out of anywhere. Something is causing it. So what's causing the craving? And once we get the answer to that question, then we know what to do to counterbalance that or counteract that or what issue has to be dealt with in order to reduce and eliminate the craving. Craving is not, uh, you know, craving drugs is not something that some people have a fear that it's always going to be there. No, it's not. It's not always going to be there. There's, There's something... When someone craves something, that's the only exception is if there's a physical addiction, but we're not talking about that. If somebody's craving something, there's a reason why they're craving it, and we want to get to that. And once we get to that and solve that, then you solve the craving. The craving goes away and dissipates. Again, I know it sounds simple, but it works. All right, let's go back to the phones. Hi, can I have your first name, please, and your hometown? Anthony, San Bruno, California. Can you speak up a little bit, Anthony? Uh, San Bruno, California. Okay, speak up a little bit so I can hear you. Okay. San Bruno, California. Good, perfect. Okay. How can I help you, sir? Um, So, my question is, I have an oral fixation with smoke, and um, if, if if the only thing that gives me a big cloud is smoking meth, how can I stop the cravings of wanting to smoke meth and have that big cloud? 
just uh, feel feel my craving. You said you have an oral fixation with smoke. Yeah, I like I like to blow big clouds of smoke, and if I mean if I can smoke quote unquote meth without there being any meth in it, and not have an addiction to it, I would. And how do I overcome and, that? And, Wait, wait, and you're and you're saying you you do that you would do that just because of the the wanting to see the smoke cloud? Yes, sir. I don't know what to say to that. Okay. Honestly, I wouldn't know what to say to that. Because I mean, I if, think I could, if I could smoke. Well, if I got smoke something that, that like like meth, how you get a big cloud, and it not get me high, I would. But there's nothing out there that that would fulfill my craving for that cloud. Yeah, I I don't think you're being honest with yourself, to be honest. Okay. Um, did well, did I, was what did you like smoking meth? Yeah. But sometimes I didn't like the way it made me feel. Sometimes I would get too high, and I would. Sometimes I would feel, man, why did I smoke? Keep on smoking, but the whole fixation was the cloud. Well, that the cloud is a byproduct. You know, that's. You know what I'm saying? That's like uh, someone who, you know, you know, hung out with a group of people sniffing cocaine, and you know, the group, you know, being in the group and hanging out, and that atmosphere was just a byproduct. But the getting high was the whole purpose for it. So that's the way you can look at the smoke cloud. The smoke cloud is just a byproduct, but the whole purpose was the getting high. Yeah, that's, but I've that's, actually... Go on. Go. I was going to say, that's, that's where I think you are fooling yourself by just saying, you know, it's if I can if I can somehow eliminate the meth from it and still smoke and just get the smoke cloud, then I'd be satisfied. Yeah. I definitely would, because now I smoke cigarettes. I'm in recovery, and and I I smoke cigarettes like I chain smoke now, and I don't. I I didn't want to smoke when I got out of jail, but I keep smoking, just to have that, you know, that that fixation of the cloud. So, what you have is you have an association of a particular thing, this cloud, with something that you did, which was getting high on methamphetamine. Yeah. Okay. You need to talk more about well, what is it? What is it about that fixation, that smoke cloud? Yeah. Okay. Why I'm so focused on that? Because you even said when I asked you, you know, did you smoke meth? Yes. Did you like it? Yes, except for when I did it too much. But the answer yeah. is still yes. Yeah. And that's the bottom line. Because if there was no, if, 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 however you did your meth, if there was no smoke cloud, you wouldn't have turned to, if, if, if you, if, if there was no smoke cloud, honestly speaking, would you have said, wait a second, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore? Because unless I can get a smoke cloud, I'm not doing this. Would you have said that? Yeah. Because it was, it was then, no fun for me. Because when I when I when I smoke meth, I blow it out, 
in a, on a table or on a flat surface, and, and then I make tornadoes out of it. And I, that, you know what? That, uh, um, you, you're going to have to call back. I'm going to have you call back when my co-host is here because I want him to hear this for for himself. Okay. I've never heard this. Okay. I've I've never heard this before. All right. So when should I call oh. back? Well, we don't have a live show next week, but the week after that, which will be the uh, 29th, that Tuesday. Yeah. But I want you to, on, between now and then, what I want you to think about is your association, meaning that your your focus is on the cloud of smoke rather than on the using and what that has done to you. Right. Okay? Okay. Yep. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go to this call here. Hi, welcome to the show. Can I have your first name, please, in your hometown? Hello? Hello, hi. Can I have your first name, please, in your hometown? Felicia, San Francisco. Hi, Felicia. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I'm calling to see, can um, caffeine be a trigger? For some, yes. It's a stimulant. It's a stimulant? Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering why all these feelings came up by drinking caffeine. What what drugs did you do? Meth. Meth's a stimulant. Oh, yeah. A real bad one. I'm so glad yes. I don't do that one no more. Right. So you have to be careful that if you're drinking coffee and how much you're drinking, if it's not decaf, that you're not, you know, substituting stimulant for stimulant. You know what I mean? Yes. Okay. Something to be aware of. Okay. I will do that. Thank okay. you very much. You're yes. very welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I really want uh, Mr. Uh, Humble co-host to uh, hear that, not the last call, the one before that, see what his response to that would be. I was dumbfounded. It's the first time I've heard that. All right, let's go back to the X-Files. Um, Ryan. Using drugs has added to my PTSD. Okay, listen to this one. PTSD and womanizing. What can I do to change that or work on it? Well, I am no expert, but I do not see the connection between your PTSD and womanizing. So your PTSD, which stands for post-traumatic stress disorder, is as a result of something you experienced. The womanizing is something you do. And if you're saying, well, I do that as a way, that's my way of coping along with drugs with my PTSD, which is what it appears that he's saying. What can I do to change it or work on it? Well, one, one 
one might say one is a character flaw and one is a an issue that needs help and support. That's what most would say to that. Uh, if you're saying the womanizing is something you use as a form of uh, coping, you're part of your coping mechanism with your PTSD, I guess I, I, I would have to hear those words come out of some, someone's mouth, really. Because I've, I've never heard that. And sometimes you have to be careful with addicts. It can be very, very, very uh, clever with what they may associate with uh, their drug use or use as their reasons for their drug use. To be careful. You've got to flush these things out. It's the beauty of when you're in treatment and you have someone in front of you and you're listening to them talk about you know, themselves and what what they believe about themselves and their addiction and their lifestyle, so on and so forth. And you listen carefully and, you know, you're making mental notes for the holes that you want to punch in some of the stuff, punch holes, figuratively, by the way, in some of the things that they're saying that they believe in regards to their uh, their their addiction. And this would be one of them. So that's my answer to that. All right, let's go back to the phones. Hi, welcome to the show. Can I have your first name, please, and your hometown? Hi, this is Sadiq from Oakland. Hi, welcome. How can I help you, sir? Uh, my question is, what is the difference between being sober and being clean? Ah, very interesting and clever question. Because you hear those terms used interchangeably, don't you? Yeah, and the way that I see it is being clean is not using, but being sober is actively choosing to remain clean. It's making sober decisions or uh, clean decisions. It's a, a lifestyle as opposed to being clean is just not using. Okay. Is that definition correct? Well, it's... It's not right or wrong. It might just be how you see it. Mm-hmm. So let me just tell you from my experience, like where those two words came from and how they sometimes came together and how they sometimes go apart. Right. So the sober part was mostly attributed to AA. Because, you know, with drinking alcohol and when, and and stopping the drinking, the term was you became sober. Uh-huh. And so even if you think about it, you know, out in society, they have sobriety checkpoints, right? They don't have clean checkpoints. They have sobriety checkpoints. So the word sober was mostly attributed to alcohol, uh-huh. and the word clean was mostly attributed to drugs. And so when you put them together... We're talking about, and most people have talked about, drugs and alcohol, clean uh-huh. and sober. That's where the term, how they came together uh-huh. and where they came from separately. Follow me? That's interesting. Yeah. It's actually a lot different than what I was thinking. 
Yeah. And so now people just use them interchangeably. You know, I, I want to live I want to live a clean and sober lifestyle, but the person has never used a drug substance in their life other than alcohol. Okay. So that's where we are today. We just use them interchangeably. Okay. Well, that makes sense. All right. All right. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right. Have a good evening. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, they say clean. They say sober. Clean and sober. Sober living environment. Clean and sober living environment. See, where it gets tricky is where you have people who who have no problems whatsoever, have none in their history at all with alcohol. Some don't even drink. Or in their history, they may have been event drinkers. They drank on New Year's or on their birthday, and that's it, twice a year. So they don't have an alcohol problem or issue at all. And so... What what term do they use? Do they just say clean? No, I mean, people have gotten used to just using the terms clean and sober. And there are people who are living a clean and sober lifestyle, clean and sober lives, um, but drink socially or less than show socially. They're you know event drinkers, like I like to describe. They drink at a wedding. They drink on New Year's. They drink at their birthday. But that's it. That's why I call it an event drinker. But if you ask that person, they'll tell them, I'm, I live in clean and sober. They had a drug problem. They clean their lives up. So they use the term interchangeably. All right. I think i got enough time for one more call. So let's go to our last call for the day. Can we have your first name, please, and your hometown? My name is Johnny from Santa Rosa. Hi, Johnny. Welcome to the show. How you doing? Um, I have a Good. question. So I have a 17-year-old son, and um, I feel like he's using, but I can't pinpoint exactly or confirm that he is. And what do I need to do to find out that he is using? That's that's hard to say, and I wish you were not the last call because what I need to say, I'm going to run out of time. It's very right. difficult to to address that in terms of trying to be a sleuth, a detective, so to speak. Right. But um, it would be unfair to you for me to give you the short answer. You need the correct answer, the full answer. So I just need to ask from you, would you consider – calling us back on our next show so I can give you the answer to that to that situation that you deserve? No problem. Because we're going to run out of time, and I don't want to do that okay. to you. Yeah, no worries. Uh, when is the next show? The next show will be on Tuesday the 29th. Tuesday the 29th. Our New Year's right. show, yes. You'll yes. be hearing from me then on Tuesday the 29th. All right. Thank you very much. All right. No problem. You guys have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Well, we are out of time for today, folks. Uh, Once again, thanks to all our listeners, uh, thanks to our callers, and those who continue to send us uh, our X-File questions for our recovery support time, and to those who continue to support our show in general. We really appreciate your support, your participation. 
Remember to keep our co-host and his family in your thoughts and prayers. He will be back, hopefully, for our next show, um, which will be on the 29th. We will not have a show next week because of the Christmas holiday, which is Friday, and as a result has kind of moved our business up one day, and we must put our clients first. So we will not be on the show on the air live next uh, Tuesday. So Merry Christmas to all of you, since we won't be able to say it next week. And once again, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, have a good week, everyone.
our show for this evening thank you for listening be sure to listen to our next broadcast tuesday at 4 p.m pacific standard time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash ocg radio like us friend us and follow us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash ocg ca and on twitter at ocg ca you can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, are you gonna